1: Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hey. Hi, everybody. So this week, we decided to each discuss a female hero from World War II, uh so i was kind of looking for maybe like a holocaust hero or something uh related to that because monday january 27th is international holocaust remembrance day in the year of 2020 um there are obviously a lot of people in the world who don't believe that the holocaust happened there is, is a lot of insanity It's insanity there's a lot of people that truly believe it didn't happen um You know, these World War II is getting further and further away from us. It's very important to always remember the heroes and the people. Uh, that need to be remembered from this time, especially those who overcame some really, really difficult obstacles. And it's
0: very important also, because for me, I feel like when we were children in the 90s uh, and before, because, of course, it was closer to when the Holocaust had happened, and also there was this kind of resurgence in media where there was a lot of um, Holocaust-related media, movies, TV shows, things like that, that we were kind of inundated with. Throughout our childhoods, but since then, I, you know, of course, we still talk about the Holocaust. It's still the subject of of movies and TV shows and things like that. But I recently watched, like, The Devil Next Door. Did you watch that?
1: Okay, it's very frustrating to watch TV shows with my boyfriend because he doesn't like to watch too much of the same show for too long.
0: Yeah. So it's like
1: we can't watch the same thing every night. We have to like mix it up. Ooh. So we watched the first episode, but we haven't gotten through the rest of it. We're watching the Aaron Hernandez one right now. I'm we're surprised almost done with it. So we're gonna we're gonna work on that one next. Because
0: that one leaves with a cliffhanger. We every talked time. about it last week. Yes. Uh so but when you're watching it, I think it I needed to watch it and see a lot of the footage. From World War Two, I feel like I was talking to Anthony when we were watching it. There are certain things like the footage, the video footage from World War Two, from yeah. these Holocaust camps, uh, and like photos yeah. from, um, you know, slavery, American yeah. slavery. These things you should be ha- you should have to watch or look at. On a regular basis, you should have to look at it once a year to remind yourself of just how terrible it was. Yeah, because we can talk about it, and you know we can watch these movies, and those things are all very important. But it's easy to forget the horror, and that it was real—the actual horror when you see these bodies like piled up. And, of course, trigger warning throughout this entire thing because it is horrifying and there is a degree of, you know, uh, generational trauma that can Mm -hmm. happen. Definitely. Um, But when you see it, it's unlike... It's heartbreaking. It's unlike... It's soul-crushing, really. It's unlike anything. It doesn't feel real. Mm -mm. It doesn't feel like reality. Um, So I do encourage people to... You know, take in what you can handle. Don't push yourself emotionally yeah. past what you can do. But it's do, important but-
1: for us to look at these things so they don't repeat. Right. You and can't also look
0: away from the horror of these it. These
1: survivors, there's very few left. Right. These survivors are getting older. They're getting very, very old at this point. Right. So we are losing that contact, that, like, one-on-one, you're telling me your experience, mm-hmm. ex- you know, kind of conversation where soon it's just going to be history books. It's just going to be right. accounts from ancestors which and stories passed down.
0: Another thing you should, um, another reason why you should watch Devil Next Door is because when you have the survivors on the stand actually oh, talking about what happened to them, it's, um, it's It's super heartbreaking, but again, it's important. These are experiences yep. they lived through. And while I was doing my research this week, I spent a good amount of time on the United States Holocaust Museum website, mm-hmm. which is wwwus HMM HMM.org. And you can go on there and they've actually made it their mission to do a lot of oral histories with survivors. So there's videos of them. Um, They've documented this for posterity, videos of them talking about their experiences. They also have a catalog of ID cards. So there are like 700 ID cards. You can click on a picture and read about like these people and what their experiences (sighs) were like in the camps or or during the Holocaust. I've read a lot of like
1: memoirs and nonfiction books uh from holocaust survivors i've mentioned this before it's been something i've been fascinated with since i was probably too young um but i i mean of course read night by eli weissel that's Mm -hmm. the best one i've ever read but there's so many great memoirs out there i I started reading the diary of anne frank when i was like nine Mm -hmm. you know so good always a good
0: reread too always a good reread yep
1: so okay. do you want
0: to kick us off? We, we're also very aware that we just did a, a feminist fave yes. a couple of weeks ago, but this one is always good to do um, because there were so many um, heroes, heroines yeah. of the Holocaust. It would be hard to do it and just be like
1: a heroes episode of the Holocaust. It's. I feel like I like it when I can go in depth on one person that we right. might not know the story of. Agreed, agreed. Yeah. So that's why we're doing it. Because I asked Keegan too, I was like, I know we just did one, but I feel like it would be good to... Concentrate on one specific. Right, we wanted each. to do
0: something. Yeah, uh, and so this was a a good you know yeah thing for us to choose to do.
1: Yeah, I think so too. All right, I am going to be talking today about Hani Weisenberg. Okay, Hani Weisenberg was born on March sixteenth, nineteen twenty four in ah, Berlin. Fel- fellow Pisces. hello. Oh, you know, really? Uh, just nine years before the Nazis came to power. Her father Felix was a photographer and believed his family was as German as they got, and being German had nothing to do with religion to them. He was like, that was a very liberal family, they were well, like Well, of course. We
0: are Germans through and through. Like Your religion does not have anything to do with your nationality. It doesn't. Like and, there are and people oftentimes forget that, especially like with the like Islamophobia that we have in this country. Yeah. Where people who are Muslim Americans are somehow less American. Yeah. It's just like, no, a lot of these people, they were born here just like us. They they watch football every Sunday just like us, you know, like – They're American. It's
1: very yeah, well, so he had the right idea. He's like, I'm I'm a German. Right. I'm not just Jewish, I'm also a German. The Nazis made Felix a forced laborer on farms and he soon dies from exhaustion after that. And then Hani's mother, Alice, dies of a heart disease in nineteen forty two because there was no medical help for Jews. She was like incredibly distressed (laughs) and there was no one to help her. And so Hani is now an orphan. Her grandmother was then deported to There's an stat, I'm going to say. I will say a lot of these German places wrong. I apologize. I tried to write this one out phonetically, and I don't even know if I'm still saying it right. Uh, She was transferred to a concentration camp where she was murdered. And Hani would later say that she was glad that her family died so early because it saved them from seeing a lot of horrible things. Which is so sad to think about because she's almost like, "I, I didn't want my parents to struggle
0: like I did, you know. I mean, so, and obviously she came out on the other side of it, but that truly does go to show you the horror that these people experience exactly that it's almost like i would I would rather have. Died and not had to experience what I experienced. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: well, spoiler, she never goes to a concentration camp, and that's oh. part of what's crazy. Okay. So, all right. Honey went to school until 1939 when she graduated from primary school. She then worked as a nanny for a Jewish family for about a year and started an apprenticeship as a cleaner, but had to quit her job after a few months because at the age of 16, you were made to go then go into forced labor. She worked in a textile factory that made parachutes for German Wehrmacht. Were I don't know, is that just, like, the, the war movement? Uh, yes, it was for, like, German soldiers. Mm-hmm. At 18, Hani was alone in her home when the Gestapo pounded on the door. It was 1943, and the German police had evacuated all Jews from her apartment building. Hani was then at the doctor's before because she had an injured finger. So at this point, she's actually living with another family, which I believe are named the Most Family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she comes home to an empty apartment. There's nobody there. And she's 18 years old. and All of a sudden she starts hearing a pounding at the door and German soldiers screaming at her. She had been gone. She had just missed when they had evacuated everybody from the building. So the Gestapo started ordering for her to open the door, but Hani did not. She is known to be a timid rule follower saying it was very difficult for me not to follow that order. One has to really hold on in order not to be obedient when such a strong demand comes. Eventually, the Gestapo left, figuring no one was home, but Hani was not safe there. Hani then hid in the building stairwell. She was wearing a Yellow Star of David on her coat, and she had only her coat and her handbag with her. She says, I walked the street in cold blood. I had no plan, but I knew I shouldn't be noticed. That's my best protection. Eventually, she got to the nearest subway, and then she showed up on a non-Jewish friend's doorstep. It was the mother of the home who gave Hani the idea that would save her life, and she suggested that she disguise herself. Hani then spent three days at the hairdresser dyeing her dark hair to a bright blonde.
0: Oh God, so hard to maintain. I know it's so hard to maintain the maintenance. She just spent three days at the hairdresser. Also, I mean, as if there—I mean, I know what she's doing, and it makes sense because people have such a narrow view of um, other human beings. Yeah, but like there were blonde Jews.
1: Yeah, she's a yeah. Montana-ing it. Yeah. I don't know. There were blonde Jews, but she, but it wasn't necessarily just that she, um, she wasn't trying to, I mean, obviously she was trying to disguise that she was Jewish, but she was trying to create a whole new identity. Mm -hmm. And if she were to keep her hair dark, it would be harder for her to change her identity. Sure. So to disguise herself even more, she renamed herself hannah Winkler. She says part of her transformation was letting go of fear. She's quoted to say, fear is a luxury I could not afford. Of course, I was worried that someone would still recognize me. But if you are scared, you become insecure, and that is really more dangerous than anything. For the next year, she stayed with various families in the neighborhood. She would help take care of the children and do jobs around the house to earn her keep. All the while, her finger was still badly injured, but she couldn't go to the doctor because they need your personal information. Um, At that time, she lived with a family in Charlottenburg, and she did so until 1943. At the time, she let people believe that she had lost her home in a bombing, which was very common for families in Germany. One of Hani's favorite things to do during this period was go to the movies. It was dark, and she felt safe. One day at the movies, she met a handsome man named Oscar Kolzer, who had recently been drafted into the Army. I know, right? Before he left, he asked Hani if she would please keep visiting his mother, Victoria, who sold tickets at the theater. She confided in Victoria, and they grew a mother-daughter relationship. Victoria and her husband kept Hani uh, in their home until the end of the war. Since Hani was in hiding, Victoria shared her grocery cards with the girl. So really, this Victoria and her husband, Gene, took Hani into their home and kind of made it look like that was maybe, like, a family relative or mm-hmm. something like that, but really kept her safely inside. She couldn't go out and, like, do her own errands so or anything. So did they know? Yeah, she confided in them. Hmm. She got really close to Victoria Kohlzer and eventually said, "I'm actually Jewish." And
0: bold move, super bold. I, like I was probably risky. wouldn't have done it. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have done it to be honest.
1: Yeah, she lived with Victoria and Jean until 1945. So, after the liberations of Berlin by the Red Army, she now had to fear the attacks from the Soviet soldiers. She knew that the most family were now in Berlin, which is the first family that she was kind of living with, Mm -hmm. where allegedly the dangers of the Soviet Army were less. So, she and Victoria hiked on foot to Berlin's... And Victoria's like an old lady, huh? Yeah, Zellendorf or something. Yeah, they hiked by foot to get to this place because they felt
0: like the threat... Of the Soviet Army was less. I mean, less. people were just legit tougher back then, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, oh, man, if I have to walk more than, like, four blocks, I'm like, oh.
1: And there were cars then. They could have driven, right? I don't know. Yeah, but, I mean,
0: I understand extreme <laughs> circumstances.
1: I'm not trying to say, like. Yeah, no, it just sounds like a lot of work. So both women ended up in, back in Nolendorfstrasse, okay. which is where, which is where they were living during World War II, uh, where they found employment with the U.S. Army. The next year, she discovered that she had an uncle who was alive in Paris. He had discovered her name on a list of the R- DRK tracking service. So the names of the different people that had survived the war. Mm-hmm. It's like, basically, you put your name out there so that if there is family out there, they can check you. Yeah. So she moved to Paris. Um, in Paris, she met her future husband, who was also from a German-Jewish family, and they started a painting company together. Unlike That's many- really cute. Isn't that cute? Yeah. Unlike many Holocaust survivors, Hani decided to continue speaking German. She says you cannot exchange children's songs and tenderness in a foreign language." But choosing to speak German in Paris was risky, as German was seen as a very hostile language. Which I feel like it's still seen as. Like, it sounds uh, it,
0: very intense. It, it does sound very aggressive. It does. But I think it was also just because, look, man... Oh, <laughs> at the time? No. It's like, we don't want any of that. And after World War One and World War Two, like, we went and saw 1917, and I was like, goddamn. Like, yeah. being being German, like, after World War Two, was probably like, y'all kept starting shit. Yeah. From World War One and World y'all, War 2
1: Y'all kept starting shit. And
0: especially... In France yeah, it's just like y 'all could not stop fucking with France, yeah, so it's it 's no surprise that they were like, please don 't but she should she should be like but i 'm Jewish, like I get it like, I mean yes, yes, yeah. yeah, well, she went
1: on to have two children and five grandchildren in one thousand nine hundred and fifty eight Hani, whose last name is now Levy, applied for Victoria Kohlzer to be honored by the sung Heroes Initiative, which also provided financial support to those who helped the Jewish people during the war. The application was accepted two years later, and Victoria would receive money monthly from the state. In 1978, Jean and Victoria Kolzer, along with two members of the Most family, would become part of Yad Vashem's Righteous Among the Nations. Uh, Do you know what that is? Yes. Okay, so it's basically, it's like the Israelis' official memorial for the victims of the Mm -hmm, Holocaust. Yeah. And Hani actually worked with them. She was part of that project, whatever you want to call it, and Mm -hmm. um, she had, you know, said that I really want to honor the people who saved my life. This list consists of 627 non-Jewish Germans who helped Jewish people during the war. In 1983, she wrote a 13-page report on her survival, which is now in the German Resistance Memorial Center. After the war, she stayed in touch with her home country of Germany, giving speeches at schools and the German Resistance Memorial Center in Berlin as a contemporary witness, She was also involved in the installation of a plaque for Victoria and Jean Colzer in the courtyard of the house she was hidden in. It was unveiled in 2010. She laid four stumbling blocks next to it representing her relatives in 2011. In 2017, she was contacted by Klaus Raffel, who asked uh, her to help him on his semi-documentary film, The Invisible, We Want to Live. And I was trying to watch this, but I didn't get to this week, because it was really, like you've got to be in the right mindset right. to watch these movies. And I usually only have time at night and then it's something that Max and I have to agree upon. And I usually don't want to watch something super heavy before right. bed unless I, know. I have the time to watch something a little more positive. So I didn't get around to watching it, but I really would like to. It's a film in German.
0: Mm-hmm. What's it called? The
1: Invisible? The Invisible We Want to Live. Okay. So it's, it's about four Jewish people who were hiding in plain sight in Berlin. Mm-hmm. So it's all about the people who like had to disguise themselves. That's and fascinating. Never left Berlin. Like that's, that's amazing. What's crazy to me is like, I know, I feel, I feel like I was kind of getting through the story really quickly, but I want to really have everybody put their mindset to the fact that she was staying somewhere that was being bombed that was so oppressed her friends her family everyone was gone she made the decision to trust this one
0: woman who easily could have turned her in right because also which we'll get to in my story a little bit um it can't be overstated the bravery of the people who helped people oh, because yeah. not only were they at risk of punishment of death, but their whole families were. Yeah. and it's especially risky for this woman because her son is in the army. Exactly. So the repercussions for her family could have been devastating. Very. You and know, for,
1: and for her son, like yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Her whole her yeah, whole family like it's for, really... for
0: herself, for her husband, for her son. Like literally, like they they could all be put to death by law yeah. for helping her. Yeah. So it's it's amazing.
1: It really is And it amazing. does go to
0: show you, like, look, I understand the feeling of self-preservation, but anytime you have a moment in history like this, right, where you see people, like, when you talk about the Underground Railroad, when you talk about um, people who helped Jewish people during the Holocaust, like, you can really see that there are people who are Truly willing to do what's right. And so, again, not to spoil anything for for The Devil Next Door, but, like, his family very much is still kind of, like, because you kind of, was he or wasn't he, this guy from the Holocaust, like, through this entire time, whether or not he was a, a guard- at one of these concentration camps. And basically at the end, my determination was like, even if he wasn't this person, he was was definitely working in one of these concentration camps. And his family is kind of like, his grandson's interviewed and he's like, well, he did what he needed to do to survive. And it's like, Mm. I understand what you're saying. I understand the sentiment of like, living in an oppressive regime, but there were also people who, who despite being in physical danger, decided to do what was right instead. And even being
1: raised, you know, there's... I read a book a while ago about a... It was a memoir of a woman who was raised in, like, Hitler's youth. Mm -hmm. He was raised, like,
0: in his hometown. There's always that choice. And I think that people oftentimes forget that, like... A lot of people, when we're talking about slavery and the founding fathers, they're like, well, it was of the time. It was what? And I was like, look, there were abolitionists even then. Yeah, there were. So there were people who, knew, who knew what was right.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so this film was huge when it came out, and it made Hani sort of a celebrity. She started giving interviews for newspapers and magazines and TV stations. In 2018, another memorial plaque for the Colzers was installed on the portal of the house in Nolan Melinda no Strauss. <laughs> I'm not saying it right. I'm doing my best. Okay. On January 28th, 2018, she spoke at the Federal Party Conference in Hanover on the occasion of the Day of Remembrance for the Victims of National Socialism. There, she warned about history repeating itself. She says, it used to be said that the Jews are to blame. Today, it's the refugees. And I thought that was something really wonderful, that she was able to tie in something that she went through... In her childhood and her formative years, and was saying, "Look, we don't want this to happen again with the refugees that are coming into you know the U.S. country and, then right. and all, all these things." Um, she died at age ninety-five in Paris on October twenty-second, two thousand nineteen. So she literally Recently. just passed away few months ago. Yeah, the year of her death was also the year that she was honored with the Order of Merit of the State of Berlin and the Federal Cross of Merit, First Class. It is important that Hani survived because contemporary witnesses to the Holocaust are so important. And, of course, about 1,700 Jews survived the Holocaust in Berlin. I shouldn't say, of course, like, of course it happened, but of course I have to mention it. Yes. 1,700 Jews survived the Holocaust. It's not very many. In Berlin in yeah. Berlin like they stayed but the fact that there was that many that stayed in Berlin and just before I forget I want to, I want to shout out that I got a lot of my information from the New York Post, the com, and staradvertiser.com was wow. where I got most of this information. I didn't know about her that's great. It's crazy. I mean, it's I'm one of those people where I love reading stories about the experience of a concentration camp mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. And it was almost, like, hard for me to do one that wasn't, like, super tragic. Like, her family died. Like, yes, there's a lot of tragedy going mm-hmm. on here. But, like, it was it I kind of had to force myself and stretch myself to learn more about the people who survived in a very different way.
0: Right, because I, I do think it becomes... It, it, these stories need to be told, again, like I said, like, these stories need to be told, we need to be watching these interviews, we need to be watching this footage, like, all that stuff. But there is a degree, and I think some people get this way, with uh, true crime elements, as well as talking about the Holocaust and things like that, where there's almost, like, a tragedy porn yeah. uh, element it's not, of it. It's not,
1: like, bad enough. Right, you know? Where
0: where people are just, like, they want to just sit in, like the awfulness of it, which is something that needs to happen, yeah. of course. Like so there's a balancing act that needs to happen I've, there. But. Yeah, it's just
1: weird. I've always been someone who wants to know all the drama. Like I well, since that's a, I was I
0: think that's most people, you know? Yeah, you
1: know, I but even when I was little, like when everybody else was reading Harry Potter, I was reading like James Patterson and like Right. I mean I was very interested in like the very dark, twisted or like uh youth novels about
0: you know, drug addiction and, well, like, of course. sex why, diseases. It's and, why A&E has an entire, you yeah. know, it, it's why people watch Hoarders. It's why people watch Intervention. It's why people watch anything about true crime. Uh, it's yeah. because we as human beings have this fascination about, like, other human beings and what we're capable of. Yeah. You know, and why we are the way we are and people who are different from us what and, also, like, how like, things can become the way they become, you know?
1: And also, we want to learn about the strongest will, I feel like. You know, I read a lot
0: of stories about abductions
1: (laughs) because that's, like, my biggest fear is being abducted, not by aliens, by other human beings. Um, And a lot of these stories are, like, memoirs of people who have survived them. And for me, it's, like, it's fascinating to read about how the human spirit can withhold so much tragedy
0: and so much pain and still get through it. It it is, it's almost, (laughs) and I don't want to say it this way because I understand it does become... Tragedy porn, inspiration porn, like, all these other things. But there is something to be said about, like, knowing what we're capable of. What human beings are capable of both on the extremely horrific side, like, the Nazis. Like, what normal, seemingly normal people who went on to live unextraordinary lives, Nazis, a lot of them did. You know, like, what they were capable of doing in those circumstances. And then also what these other people on the other side were capable of surviving. Yeah. You know, like, there's something kind of... It's just, we as human beings need that. Yeah. Especially now, when we're living in a relatively comfortable time, right? Like, you and I are... I mean, we are. Like, we are, yeah. You know, Madigan made a face. But, <laughs> but we are. I mean, as far as, like, yes, it's scary, it's weird, it's like... um If you watch too much news, it can be, like, disheartening, but we're not having bombs dropped on us. Yeah. You are not being – we, you and I, are not being rounded up and put places. No. You know, so we are living relatively comfortably, and it's important to, like, remind ourselves, one, that not everybody is, even right now. Yeah. And, two, where where we would stand if something like this were to happen again, to always do what's right. Yeah. And what we can withstand. Yeah. You know what I mean? And my story will also touch on that. A I think bit. those
1: are three really great points. And also the fact that, you know, Hani Weisenberg or Hani Levy brought up um, the refugees mm-hmm. and really, you know, we drew that conclusion when we were really discussing these um, internment camps. Yes. that The refugees are being put in how literally history, concentration camps. They are like yeah. history is repeating itself. And I think that's another reason why it's so important is because we know this. We know that these ideologies of these horrible people, especially in these political powers, don't necessarily just change. And I think that Germany, for one, has done a lot of work in um, rectifying their mistakes and recognizing and recognizing everything and, and, you know, memorializing a lot of the people who died and survived. And I think that's great. But I think that those ideologies um, can stem to other places and other people. There are people people out there that have that hate in their heart and for people like you and I and for our listeners to hear these stories it's good to know what to look out for be aware that a lot of these ideologies still exist so when history repeats itself we can be on the right side of
0: history and call it out because I remember whenever a lot of that stuff was really first starting to come out about the separation at the border and the internment camps and things like that uh, where people were saying you know I remember when I was a kid, a lot of people liked to talk really big about like, well, if I had been alive during the Holocaust, I would have done this or that. And it's just like, well, what are you doing right now? Because history will look back on this. And if you are one of those, if you can look at Nazi Germany and say these people were complicit. Shame on them, yeah. and then at the same time say, "Well, I think what's happening at the border is fine." Yeah. Then then you're being hypocritical. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Huh. Okay, so the woman that I'm going to be talking about it has been called the female Oscar Schindler, which Woo. I always get kind of weird when people are like, "It's the, the female f- version." The f- yeah, exactly. Yeah. The female this or the African American that, and I'm just like. Or we could just, you know, she did her own thing. Yeah. But it does give a good illustration of what she was about. I was going say, yeah, yeah you're, that's a good indication of what we're about to learn. Absolutely. So, um, her name is Irina Sendler. And she was born on February fifteenth, 1910, in Warsaw, Poland. And although they were not Jewish themselves, their community was very, like, intermixed. And her father was a physician and humanitarian, and his name was Stanislaw. And he tended to... Santa Claus? No, no, Stanislaw. Oh, Stanislaw. I was like, Santa Claus? Santa Claus. Like, not Santa Claus. You're like, Santa Claus. amazing. <laughs> the coincidence. No. Um, Stanislaw. And he was a physician. He was also a humanitarian. He tended to Warsaw's poor uh residents, including Jewish families free of charge. So yeah. he he would realize that like even though he was a physician, he could see that like everyone deserves, deserves medical medical care. Oh. Yeah. It's almost like huh. health care is a human right. Maybe. Isn't possibly. Isn't that interesting?
1: Crazy. <clears throat>
0: so forward thinking, Stanislaw. <laughs> But when Irina was seven years old, her father died. No! Yes, I know. He contracted typhus from oh. one of his patients. And the Jewish community, because, again, they were so intermixed, yeah. and he had done so much for their community, she had spent so much time within their community, yeah. they kind of rallied, and they went to her and her mother, and they offered them financial help. They were oh. like, we'll help you. And her mother, though, Janina, you know, she was a little proud, and she yeah. didn't accept their help, but there was that kind of, I, I just say Support. that yeah, to illustrate the relationship that all of these people had with yeah. each other. Um, she began studying law and Polish literature in the 1930s. Yeah. And when she began studying at, I think it was the Warsaw University, University of Warsaw, yeah. She opposed the ghetto benches that had been put in uh, at the university. And mm-hmm. I actually went to the Wikipedia page and read what that was. Yeah. And it was a practice that was done at a lot of universities that was um, to segregate out the Jewish students from the non-Jewish students. So, so, like,
1: if they were out in the courtyard, they were to sit on, like, a certain bench?
0: No, 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 like, uh, lecture halls. Lecture halls, Yeah, it. so they were to sit at a, on a certain, like, area in the, the lecture halls. And they also had identification cards that would say either Jewish or non-Jewish on their identification cards. Stupid. And she got in trouble often for what they called her judophilia. Um, what? <laughs> yes, like, she had this um, obsession... Well, they called it an obsession, but she called it just kind of like a sympathy yeah, towards or, the Jewish people. Or an appreciation. Or an appreciation, yeah. exactly. Or like, hey, maybe they're just people. Yeah. Also that. You know. Uh, and she actually got in trouble once for defacing the non-Jewish portion of her identification card. <laughs> so she was a bit of a rebel. She got in trouble constantly. And when she finally did leave school, she was repeatedly refused em- employment in the Warsaw school system because mm-hmm. of negative recommendations. <laughs> Issued by the university, and they um, ascribed her as having radically leftist views. So I
1: mean, so basically, our best friend. Yes,
0: she was like just super progressive. Yeah, she was like down with the Jewish people. She was and rebellious as fuck. Yeah, she was. Yeah. She was pretty outspokenly um, communist socialist. So. Yeah. Um, She began to be involved in several socialist and communist groups and movements, and eventually she got work in the legal counseling and social help clinic called the Section for Mother and Child Assistance at the Citizen Committee for Helping the Unemployed. And she published two pieces in 1934, both concerned with the situation of children born out of wedlock to mothers out of wedlock. So she became a social worker, essentially, like, Mm -hmm. throughout this time, actively involved within, like, socialist groups who were doing a lot of social work. Okay. Uh, She worked mostly in the field, crisscrossing Warsaw's impoverished neighborhoods, and her clients were mostly socially disadvantaged women. Those are most of who she helped during this portion of time. Wow. So when Poland was invaded in 1939, she was 29 years old. And at this point, she was employed by the welfare department of the Warsaw municipality. And the German occupation authorities ordered Jews removed from the staff of the Municipal Social Welfare Department where she was working, and they barred the department from providing any assistance to Warsaw's Jewish citizens. Mm -hmm. So at this time, they gathered around 400,000 Jews And they put them into the Warsaw Ghetto. So the Warsaw Ghetto was the largest ghetto, um, that was constructed of Jews during the Holocaust. And it was a very small portion of the city. It was only about the size of New York Central Park. So you've got 400 to 450,000 they living on
1: top of each other. Right,
0: like living yeah. in an area the size of Central Park. Yeah. Not very big at all. No. Um, and they sealed the area in November of 1940. Yeah. So as employees of the Social Welfare Department, um, Sendler and several other colleagues, there was another woman uh, who had the last name of Schultz, they gained access to special permits for entering the ghetto to check for signs of typhus. So the Germans were concerned. They didn't really care. Of course, whether or not got sick. Yeah, whether or not the people within the ghetto were sick and dying, but they were concerned that typhus would spread outside the ghetto. So they allowed a certain number of social workers to go in and work within the ghetto to um so selfish. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. It's like they could be sick, but like I don't wanna get sick. So on the plus side um, she was able to smuggle in kind of other like health care and it. blankets and clothing and things like that. And while she was working within the ghetto, she wore a star David as a sign of solidarity with the people within the ghettos. That's amazing. Yeah. So the, the situation in the ghettos, they quickly deteriorated. Irina was actually quoted later on as saying that it was pure hell beyond description. Yeah. So when we talk about like how awful it, it's, it's, very difficult to fathom the the situations these people were living under and in several of the articles i read it was also very sad because a lot of these jewish people and jewish populations knew what the alternative was mm-hmm. so being in the ghetto made them feel safe
1: yeah. at least but it was still absolutely horrid conditions
0: absolutely there was horrible very poor hygienic conditions yeah. there was a lack of food there was a lack of medical supplies and it resulted in high epidemics and high death rates. It did, yeah. So a lot of people died from illness. And like I said, when she was kind of moving in and out, she realized that she could smuggle in more supplies so she was supposed to be checking for typhus but she would also check for other illnesses and she had managed to smuggle in um, medical supplies so she could treat other illnesses while she was there yeah also because people were very sick and their clothing you know of course a lot of germs bacteria i mean probably even like lice Mm -hmm. so she was able to bring them in new clothes and things like that yeah um she was determined to do more than just bring things in. She also realized while she was there that it might be possible because she was take, going in and out with a ambulance yeah. to smuggle people out. Yes, girl. So this became an urgent priority for her. Uh, yeah, she the, got her mind to it. She's like, I got to do this. Right. And then, you know... She was kind of doing what she could and kind of like moving pretty slowly, it seemed, as far as like trying to figure out how to get people out. Uh But then in the summer of 1942, the Nazis had implemented what they called the Time of Great Action, which was when they began transporting Jews out of the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka, which Treblinka was just an extermination camp. Yes. So you arrived and then... And then they kill you. Very often within hours, you would be sent to the the gas chambers. Yeah, you're
1: out of a line, you're into another line... Waiting for the gas chambers. Exactly. Horrific. Yeah, that's when, because there was a long period of time during World War II where the Jewish communities were living in ghettos and they kind of built their lives like their new lives Mm -hmm. in these ghettos not knowing what was to come that there could be something worse right and of
0: course they weren't told whenever they were being gathered and sent to Jablinka that this was a death camp they kind of just thought that they were being moved somewhere else so um they just didn't realize that a good number of them and in Mm -hmm. fact um let me see here the, most of them, actually, there was like, most Jews were taken from the Warsaw ghetto and taken to jablinka within a matter of months. Yeah. So they did it very, very quickly. There's a timeline on one of the websites that I looked at. They did it all within the summer. It was like Himmler decided uh, we need to do this very quickly. I think the tides were turning against Germany at this point, well, and, and they th- knew they had a limited amount of time.
1: Yeah, they they had to do their you know their final solution. Exactly, and they also had to do it in a way that wasn't going to raise a lot of suspicion. And I think rather than taking small portions of people at a time, while they were still maybe not under such high suspicion yet, it would have made more sense for them to take many people out very quickly
0: right and again not to bring this up over and over again but because when you're watching the devil next door it focuses mostly on um that they were trying to decide whether or not he was ivan the terrible who was the person who operated the gas chambers in treblinka yeah so they show a lot of um footage from treblinka and it it cannot be overstated, the mountains of bodies. So they were literally taking these people, loading them as much as they could onto trains, Mm -hmm. and then sending them to to Treblinka to be exterminated. Mm. So... um, since October 1941, so in October of 1941, there was a law in Poland that was stating that anyone who offered aid to Jews in any way would not only face death themselves, but their family would also face death. So that went into implementation wow. in October of 1941. Yeah. So she was, it was a great risk what she was doing. Uh, at this time. She joined the Polish Socialists, which was a left-wing branch of the Polish Socialist Party, PPS, where she was known by the name of Carla, and she began searching for places, um, searching for homes, for escaped Jews to hide in, and began issuing fake documents to residents in the ghetto to help prepare them for departure. So over four years, she and her colleagues faked over 3,000 documents. <gasps> And while she was in, she was able to smuggle them into the camp, so while she was, like, checking them for illness... And getting
1: getting them prepared for mm -hmm. their new documentation, filling them in on what the next step is going to be.
0: Yeah, and giving them their new documents. Yeah. Which, I mean, high risk, because... Incredibly high risk. 3,000 documents. If one of those documents was found, it Mm -hmm. would take just one person telling them that you were the one who did it uh, for you to be put to death. If I remember correctly, there were soldiers... In the ghettos, too, weren't there? I don't know. Oh, I, you mean, like, like actually in them? Or like, like, German m- soldiers,
1: I, yeah.
0: I don't know. That would, like, roam the streets and stuff. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, because yes, sure. I feel like that, too, would Monitoring be... Monitoring them, right?
1: Yeah, I feel like that, too, You're you're not just dodging people outside of the ghetto, you're dodging possibly anybody coming in. I don't know. I feel like I've read stories where people I, living in the ghettos were talking about... The soldiers walking
0: around. I'm absolutely sure the regards. Yes, I'm sure the regards within the ghettos. Yeah. So, Irina and her associates began organizing for children to leave the camp, and they were able to gather funds from several remaining Jewish associations and then Christian organizations also organized travel and safe houses along the journey. And while Irina wanted to prioritize the most needy, which were, of course, orphans, people whose parents had been taken to Joy Blanca or killed, um, there were several benefactors who wanted her to prioritize children from prominent families first. Of
1: course there were. Of course, yeah. Because, yeah, <sighs> So,
0: Zagata, which I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, is the Council to Aid Jews, and it was an underground organization that Irina became a prominent member of, and she went by the name Jolanta uh, within this organization. So, she had code names within the organizations she was in. And and
1: it's different code names, too, which is smart.
0: Yeah, yeah. And she was appointed the director of Zagata's Department for the Care of Jewish Children, and Irina would drive an ambulance to enter the camp. And after treating the residents of the camp, she would leave with small children and babies hidden in bags, suitcases, packages, and coffins.
1: And that is ugh, coffins. That is so. It's so heartbreaking in a way because she's she's focusing on the children. Can you imagine being a mother yes. and working so hard to protect your child mm-hmm. and knowing that this is going to be the way to possibly save your child's life? But you also are like, I'm putting my child in danger. I can't personally watch over my child anymore. I might be gone and my daughter, I don't know what's going to happen to
0: her. Right. No, exactly. And in like, fact... That is
1: such an intense experience yeah, to go through. In
0: fact, she recalls heart-wrenching conversations as families decided whether to send their children <sighs> out into the city where discovery meant death death. And when parents asked her whether she could promise that their children would be safe, she replied that she couldn't. No. Because uh,
1: no one is no one is safe. She's
0: not safe. And that's exactly right. She yeah. said that she didn't even know whether she herself would make it out Alive of the ghetto every day. Like, so she couldn't guarantee their safety. And especially these are children and babies. So if they make too much noise, if there's anything like that, it's like there were so many risks involved. Yeah, Um, All she could offer was the promise that she would never stop working on their behalf to protect and then one day unite them. So in the end, about... 2,500 children were smuggled out of the Warsaw Ghetto with at least four to 500 being smuggled out solely by Irina. And, um... She kept meticulous records of the children's names, whereabouts, and family information. Many of the children were sent to live with Christian families and in Christian orphanages where they were taught Christian prayers. They were like grilled every day. Were these places aware that these are Jewish children? Yes. Okay. And so that's why they did it. They, and they would, were kinda
1: of conditioning them
0: to to um because they could be quizzed on Jewish prayer. I mean, on Christian prayers right. at any time. And
1: and to, to pass as being a German mm-hmm. or a Polish citizen that wasn't Jewish. Right. Right,
0: so they gave them Christian names, and then they, like, would grill them on yes. Christian prayers what's constantly. what's your name? What
1: are your parents' mm-hmm. names? What are these prayers? How were you raised?
0: Right, so she kept meticulous a, records. a lot
1: for kids. That's yes. a lot for a kid to handle.
0: And some of, like, in some of the things I was reading, it was like, it was actually pretty harsh, like, the way that they did it, but yeah. it was because they were trying to keep them safe. But as a child, I'm sure you didn't you realize. That. Yeah. You know, you just thought these people were being mean to you. But... Because of that, so she had notebooks that had like their names, their families, then where they went, then their new Christian name so that she could try keep and track keep everybody. track of everyone so that when the war was over she could give the kids back to their parents. <laughs> yeah. So she <sighs> this was is, like
1: heart wrenching. I know. Right now. <sighs> I
0: know. She was arrested in nineteen forty three by the Gestapo no. and she was tortured brutally. She had her feet and her legs broken and even though Of course, that's, like, under horrific torture. She never revealed any of the names or locations of any of the children. That's amazing that she never, one, that she
1: never, you know, gave away any personal information, which I didn't think that she would. But
0: secondly, that she wasn't just immediately killed. What was she arrested for? Uh, I think she was re- arrested on suspicion that she was smuggling people out. How was she not just killed? Well, because I think they wanted the names of where these people were hiding but and the- who was helping them. Because like those people should all be put to death as well. So they they wanted to go after them. They wanted to go after the people who were helping smuggle them out, uh, the, the families who they were now living with, and they wanted to go get those kids. Right? Because like the Nazis' final solution was serious. They weren't just going to be like, well, we just got Jews wandering around pretending yeah. to be Christians. Like they wanted to go get them.
1: I have so many questions so I want you to keep going so I don't ask preemptively.
0: Okay. Go. So because of this, because they tortured her for a significant amount of time and she never gave anything up, she yeah. was sentenced to death, okay. but she managed to survive because members of the Zagata bribed the executioner at the last minute and he allowed them to escape. Like, what? he basically, like, tur- they bribed him with money and he, like, turned his head away for, like, he's like, you have this much am- amount of time. If you can get her out, then you can get her out. So they got need her out. I a movie of this shit. Yeah. They got her out. So despite it, Almost having cost her her life, she continued to work with the Zagata uh, after this under a different name. So yes. she just changed her name and then went right back into it. And yeah. again, like, when I say, like, I, it's sometimes very difficult to do the right thing. You know what I mean? Of course it is. She had her legs broken. She had she her feet broken. She given up easily. She's of like, I, I did my duty. What right. else do you want
1: from me? Right. You know? Exactly.
0: Um, after the war... Irina Sendler continued to help people by taking a job as a nurse, and despite the demands of her job, she still attempted to make good on her promise to return the children to their families, mm-hmm. but sadly, most of the families had been killed in Treblinka, Treblinka. Um, or were missing, and she yeah. just couldn't find them. So she was able to reunite a few, but for the most part, she was na- never able there to was reunite orphans, them. Yeah. yeah. So, for her efforts, Sendler was recognized by the State of Israel as one of the righteous among the nations, and um, she was initially unable to go to Israel to receive it because of travel restrictions uh, imposed by Poland's communist government. But finally, in 1983, the award made it to her. So Aww. they were able to get it to her in um, 1983, even though I think they she was awarded it in like 1963. That's so, what I was wondering.
1: I was like, how long did it take to get to like her? Like 20 years.
0: Oh. Yeah, yeah. In 2003, Pope John Paul II personally wrote to her to thank her for her efforts. And later that year, she received Poland's highest civilian honor, the Order of the White Eagle. She was also given the Jan Karski Award for Courage and Heart by the American Center for Polish Culture. And though she received all of these awards, she's still... Again, like we were just talking about how easy it would be to give up and be like... Well, you know what, I did mine I did my good works. After getting your legs and your feet broken, being like, I'm retired. Thank you very much. She actually said, I was brought up to believe that a person must be rescued when drowning, regardless of religion and nationality. The term hero irritates me greatly. The opposite is true. I continue to have pangs of conscience that I did so little. (laughs) I know. Honey. I know. She's she's like, I should have done more. I get
1: that, though. It's that type of personality that we speak about so much on this show when we talk about these forgotten feminists is that they have this type of, like, tenacity where it doesn't end. And we're like, what? And especially when we talk to people when they're old and they're mm -hmm. still doing all these things or they did one thing, then another thing, then another thing. And you're like... How do you do this? Like, there has to just be that type of person out there where they are never satisfied until they feel they have
0: done enough good in the world. And I think when you are faced with such great wrongs, it would become easy to be like, I... There, there's so much wrong. I need to overcompensate by doing everything. And, like, yes, you know? I saved
1: all these children, but I did not save them all. I couldn't get all of them back. I, with I didn't their save their parents. You yes, know? there's so much there that I can understand because she was in the middle of it. She was working within the ghetto, working closely with these families, with these children.
0: To have not and even had a beyond, 100%
1: success rate would be really devastating. Right. And
0: even beyond that, like, There were a lot of her associates who were working within the ghetto as well who refused to leave. Yeah. So, like, once the Germans began, like, cracking down on these ghettos um, and, like, moving a lot of people out of them, there were associates of hers that were Jewish and non-Jewish who did not leave the ghettos, and so were killed within the ghettos uh, or shipped off themselves. Yeah. So, I imagine...
1: But that was their choice, choice right? Right, yeah. and
0: and she, I think, probably realized that there was more good that she could do if she left and came back, yeah, than just staying there. But there is that survivor's guilt of like always, yeah. you know, these people died for this. I should
1: have been willing to die for it, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that, but she wouldn't have been a good use. And
0: dead. I think she was willing to die for it. She was, but know? I'm.
1: But what I'm saying is, she wouldn't have been. Uh, any use to anybody if she was right? Dead. Exactly, we and I need think she, her alive. She
0: knew that, like she can't smuggle kids out if she's dead. Yeah. So uh, she did her best, you know. And she did die on May twelfth, two thousand eight, at the age of ninety eight. Yes, so she is buried in Warsaw, Poland. Wow. Yeah. Whew. And I got all of this information um, from. There's really uh, there is a really good allthat'sinteresting.com article about her. There is a yadvashem.org article and motl.org article and then uh, the information about like ghetto benches I got from Wikipedia so take a look at it. Amazing.
1: (laughs) That was a great one
0: Keegan. Gosh it's so I mean I was looking through and there are so many of course it was actually I know initially we wanted to do Jewish women and um, I wanted to do a Jewish woman but because they were living through oftentimes like one, the records aren't there for a lot of these people. Yeah. Um, and they were also living through something horrific. It was more about survival. Yeah. There wasn't as much stuff about, um, like the actual being able to work within. This is why we need allies is basically what I'm trying to say. That's what I was going to say is that, but what's just important is that you spoke about an ally. Right. Because, because when you're in it, when you're, in the oppression, when you're in the suffering, there's – what you're trying to do is survive, yeah. right? Like, that's your job. Your job is just to survive yep. and to try and keep the people around you alive. You don't necessarily have the resources to be a part of a movement, yeah. you know what I mean? And to be a part of this kind of resistance, we need allies to do that.
1: Yeah. So – And that's a very good example yeah. of a very extreme, passionate ally, what that looks like even for now.
0: Yeah. And you should also look up um, pictures of Irina Sendler when she was old because she was like the cutest old lady. I'm gonna
1: do, that's my favorite thing to do. I'm going to look it up. She was
0: so cute uh, when she was old. I was like, oh, you look like a little grandma. I love it. Aww. Yeah.
1: Oh, she's so cute. I'm looking at her younger pictures right yeah. now and her hair is so adorable. Yeah. <gasps> oh, what a sweet grandma. I know. She's got the cutest little face. Oh, my gosh. She is adorable. Adorable. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love that Hani Weisenberg has bright red hair.
0: Love. Love, love. So cute. So check out our Goals. Instagram if you want to see those pictures. We yes. always we always post pictures on our Instagram uh, anytime we release uh-huh. an episode. So check us out there. Oh, she's beautiful. Isn't she gorgeous? Yes. Look at her when she's young. Yeah, she's gorgeous. i like, damn, girl. So, yeah, if you want to see what we're seeing, yeah. go check out our Instagram. Gotta look at our Instagram. Sorry, Gotta guys. look at it. Um, so, do that. Our Instagram is at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. You can also email us if you have suggestions, if there's someone else that you want us to cover. You know, we do these Forgotten Feminist favorites fairly often. So, yeah. if there is a Jewish woman or a heroine of the Holocaust that you would like us to talk about, please let us know at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a group and business page. You can leave us a review on our group page. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts you can we love getting those on our
1: business page
0: oh wait did I say group yeah my bad business Business, business. Um, so, yes, yeah, so you can leave us it's a review. Business. Either of those places. We are going to start doing Reviews Day Tuesday again. I know we haven't been doing it for a while. Well, we but didn't
1: get any new ones for a while. I know. But
0: we, we have gotten several new ones. <laughs> yeah. And, and we haven't posted those. So, we will be um, reinstating that on our social media. Mm-hmm. So, feel free to leave us a review. You can also check us out on Twitter. Our uh, Twitter is Yamp Podcast. Y-A-N-F, Y-A-N-F. Podcast. And you can listen to us on Radio Public if you so choose. Uh, It is free for you. It is an easy way to help us out. So, yeah, I think that's all. All right. That's everything that we have for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to To rage on.
1: Hi. She suggested. I can't say suggested. (laughs) Suggested? Suggested. (laughs) Suggested. suggest suggested she suggested that i can't say the word we know what you're saying can we say what's another word for suggested she advised advised yes okay (laughs) what what word did we just say advised advised
0: (laughs) you can do it it's a serious story okay